Welcome to the Littler Workplace Policy Institute podcast. Insider briefings on the latest legislative and regulatory developments affecting employers. Good afternoon. I'm Elise Schumann, co-chair of Littler's Workplace Policy Institute. And welcome to Littler's Workplace Policy Institute California Legislative Update Briefing Call. Today's call is based primarily on the insight that was recently posted online titled California Legislative Update, which bills made the final cut. If you haven't seen the article yet, you can do so by going to our website, www.littler.com, and on the home page, clicking on News and Analysis. Today, we're joined by the authors of that article, Chris Covey, who is a Knowledge Management Council in our San Jose office, and also Cooper Spinelli from the San Jose office. And if you have any questions during the presentation, please email them directly to chris at ccobe at littler.com. Again, that's ccobe, C-O-B-E-Y, at littler.com, and Chris and Cooper will do their best to try to answer any questions as time allows. Um, But let's go ahead and get started. And let me begin by asking Chris a question. So how many bills did the California legislature consider and pass in 2016? And I guess as a follow-up to that, um, how many did the governor actually sign? And give us an idea about how that compares with some historical rates of of signing and vetoing. Well, Elise, if you saw last night's debate and how it started, I'm going to take the lead of the lead speaker there, and I'm going to actually pass that question on to Cooper. But um, before I do that, I want to give some context to those of you who may not be uh, residents in California as to what kind of old playing field we're talking about here in California. For those who don't know, California is what we would call a deep blue state, and that's reflected in the legislature. We have a 40-person state Senate, and 26 of the 40 senators are Democrats. That's within one vote of a two-thirds majority. And in the California State Assembly, we have 80 members, and 52 of those are Democrats two members short of a two-thirds majority there. As a matter of fact, the Democrats did have a two-thirds majority a couple of years ago, um, but they don't now. So what comes out of the uh, California legislature is governed by the party in charge. And we also have, of course, Governor Jerry Brown, another Democrat. So it's a solid blue state in that respect. So for that purpose, what comes out of the California legislature is uh, there's a strong labor influence here. Uh, Unions are are quite powerful, and as a matter of fact, if you read reports of various bills, you'll find out that uh, the source of many bills is publicly stated to be a particular union. So that's the context we're working in. Um, But we'll see if that changes. And now, having given you that context, I'm going to turn it over to Cooper to answer the question, Elise, that you asked. Okay, so the final tally this year was 2,042 bills were introduced this session, 1,059 were enrolled to the governor, and 892 were chaptered. 
Now that's a 15% veto rate, uh, which is largely consistent with uh, Governor Brown's veto rate for his second administration. And given the, composi the composition of the legislature that Chris just mentioned, that uh, may be a surprising uh, veto rate. Uh, but for comparison, Governor Schwarzenegger's veto rate in 2008 was 35%. And Governor Brown's for his first term was all of 2% in 1982. And then I can also comment that, that you know, what Cooper's just told you indicates how, how quickly and how much uh, bills get through the legislature because of all the bills introduced. About half of them get passed by both houses of Congress. So, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> the legislature. I'm going to leave Congress to Elise. So <laughs> there we go. I'll leave that to you, Elise. Um, well, well, thank you, and I think certainly some would argue that uh, the California legislature is a lot more uh, prolific than, than Congress, um, even Washington has been lately. Um, so th thanks for the background on the numbers. Let's talk about the content and the highlights. What were some of the most important bills to come out of this session for employers? Um, this session was, relatively speaking, it didn't have any big blockbusters. There are certainly plenty of bills that affected uh, California employers. Uh, during the course of the year, I was tracking probably 80 to 100 bills at any given time. But you know what the legislative process is like and sausage making and all that good stuff. The major bill that came through actually came through in the spring and it was the product of old-fashioned wheeling and dealing and log rolling. And that was the increase of California's minimum wage over steps, over a period of time, depending on the size of the employer, to $15 an hour. This was Senate Bill, or SB3. And that was actually put together really on the Easter weekend when the stakeholders got together not on the floor of either the House, uh, the, the Senate, or the Assembly, but actually probably in the governor's office and met with the governor. Because what, what the parties were facing were at least two ballot initiatives that would have increased the minimum wage in various ways. So the parties got together and I think over the course of maybe 36 or 48 hours hammered out uh, a bill that would be acceptable to everyone, and then it shot through the legislature in about a week and was enacted. The effect of this bill meant that the people who had backed the initiative to put on the general election ballot next month decided to, even though they had spent the money to get the signatures, to withdraw their to withdraw the initiative so it's not on the November ballot. Um, we have a separate uh, newsletter called an ASAP that went out um, in April of this year. So if you look on our website, if you want the uh, details of the steps and the size of the employers this applies to over time, you can get all that information in that minimum wage newsletter that came out, as I say, in early April of this year. So that was really the, bi the big one. But of course, with California, unlike a lot of other states, um, California allows counties and cities to enact essentially their own labor and employment legislation in many cases. And what this means is that California's got 58 counties and close to 500 cities. And many of these local jurisdictions have enacted their own minimum wages, uh, which are always higher than the state minimum wage. 
So we have cities like San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, smaller cities like Palo Alto and Sunnyvale and San Jose. And um, they have their own minimum wages. If you don't know that, you definitely should be aware of it because if you're working with an employer or you are an employer, you're going to need to follow the law that gives the employees the highest rate of, uh, uh, of pay. So it's not always going to be the state level. So we had that. That was sort of the big bombshell. But we also had a, an expansion on a bill that came through last year, and Cooper will tell you about that. Yes, and that bill was the Equal California's Equal Pay Act. Uh, last year, um, the legislature and governor amended the law to include um, the standard, which would be uh, that women need to be paid for substantially similar work as the opposite gender. This year, the legislature um, added race and ethnicity to the protected characteristic of gender for California's Equal Pay Act. And this was one of the more big-ticket items in a not-so-big-ticket year. Um, but whether or to the extent how, how much of a big-ticket item it was turns on whether the California Equal Pay Act is really that much more of an attractive vehicle for wage discrimi discrimination claims than California's Fair Employment and Housing Act. Uh, at first glance, it seems like yes. Um, so under the California EPA, there is no uh, administrative exhaustion requirement for plaintiffs. Um, the statute of limitations is longer, so it's not one year like under the Fair Employment and Housing Act, FEHA. It's two years for non-wilful violations and three years for willful. Liquidated damages in the amount equal to the wage differential are available under EPA, uh, where they're not available under FEHA. And it also covers all employers not just employers with five or more employees. And for what it's worth, the enforcement's committed to an agency, the Department of um, Labor Standards and Enforcement, that has substantially larger budget and uh, more manpower than the Department of Fair Employment and Housing. On the other hand, uh, FEHA permits full compensatory and punitive damages, and it's not uncommon to get emotional distress damages for wage discrimination. So plaintiffs would likely see a larger recovery under FEHA than California's Equal Protection Act. Um, so because um, emotional distress damages are not available under EPA, that liquidated damages provision loses some of its luster, especially when there's not a wide, wide wage differential. Now, um, Liquidated damages could make a difference, say, for um, a case where there's been 10 years of wage, alleged wage discrimination. Um, but under a doctrine that's called a continuing accrual, recovery under both acts, FEHA and the EPA, are limited to damages arising from breaches within the limitations period. So for the EPA, you cannot get um, damages extending more than two or three years, depending on whether it's a willful violation. So given these differences, I think the relative importance of the two laws for plaintiffs and for employers will likely be very fact-dependent. The bottom line is that it's been only 10 months since um, the EPA amendment last year, and it's thus too early to tell whether the EPA will increase in importance for plaintiffs or continue to be pleaded as a secondary, secondary cause of action in companion cases, which is what we're seeing a lot right now. Um, so, uh, yet. 
So bottom line is we haven't seen much of an uptick yet, and most of the claims, um, the EPA claims, have been joined or subordinated to uh, FIHA causes of action. Um, what may be troubling is that the author of this bill did suggest that we could expect to see more protected characteristics for the Equal Pay Act next year. Well, and, and the practical aspects of this, uh, just to state the obvious, is is you want to make sure that your compensation decisions and your position descriptions, of course, are are, are absolutely neutral in terms of uh, sex and race because of the additional remedies available under this. And um, you know, it's a good time near the end of the year to take a look and make sure that people. Um, in various categories, uh, you can see why they're being paid differently. Because if two people with the same qualifications start on the same day and one's a member of one of the protected categories we're talking about here and the other one isn't, that can be a problem. Of course, we all know that it's extremely rare that people are going to have identical, identi identical qualifications. However, uh, plaintiff's attorneys will say, what are the minimum qualifications? And if they both met them and there's a difference, they're going to say, okay, uh, Mr. or Ms. Employer, you explain uh, why you're paying these people differently. It certainly can be done, but it's just something to be aware of. Um, another item, uh, and this is on page, it's referenced on page two of the insight. It's uh, restrictions on employment contracts. Um, what we put in this uh, in this insight in the first section called the big ones were uh, bills that affect normally uh, all employees in Cal I'm sorry all employers in California, but we have a couple of anomalies and one of them is the restrictions on employment contracts. This, by definition, would only apply to those of you who have your employees sign employment contracts. And you have within that contract a requirement that the matter must be adjudicated, whether in court or by arbitration, outside the state of California. This new law, which takes effect on January 1, 2017, says that for any contract entered into, uh, entered into, modified, or extended after January 1, 2017, may not have that. Uh, out of California uh, provision requiring uh, adjudication outside the state. So if you have employment contracts and they do have such a provision, you'll need to change it before the first of the year. Um, that's one of the major ones. We have, we have some others, and, and I'll just quickly tick them off here in the first part of the newsletter to the extent that we don't talk about it. Um, all of you, all California employers, are required to inform each employee uh, as of uh, next year of the employee's employment leave rights as possible victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, or stalking. And you need to provide that information in writing to new employees on hire and to other employees upon request. Um, the Labor Commissioner is supposed to come up with a form on its website by July of next year that you can use to comply, and otherwise you can develop your own notice. But that's something that applies to all California employers. There is another bill that uh, restricts use of an applicant's juvenile court history. This is AB 1843, and it's listed there on page two of the newsletter, just a quick squib. 
Um, I should remind you that as Cooper and I work our way through these bills and describe them, we're only trying really to alert you to the ones that may apply to you. And we can't go through all of the, you know, three dozen bills that we're talking about here. So do take a look at the insight so you know which ones may apply to you and which ones don't. AB 1843 does say that an applicant for employment may not be asked to disclose information concerning an arrest, detention, processing, diversion, supervision, adjudication, or court disposition that occurred when the applicant was subject to juvenile court law. How do we boil that down? You can't ask them about bad stuff that occurred in juvenile court. I'm going to guess that most of you as savvy California employers don't do that anyway, but if you do, don't do it anymore. Um, Another law that we're going to have a, um, uh, a newsletter about on Littler's site probably in the next two to three weeks, you may have heard about that there's going to be uh, the option of a retirement savings plan uh, through California employers. It's not probably as worrisome as you might think uh, because the only thing that California employers will be required to do is to enable employees to make an automatic contribution from their paycheck into what are called secure choice accounts and transmit the payroll contribution to a third-party administrator that the state will determine and to potentially provide state-developed informational materials about the program to their employees. This is if you, as an employer, don't have your own retirement option for employees. The idea behind this, of course, is to allow all California employees, whether the employer has a plan or not, to put away money for retirement. So that's SB, and you'll remember this number, 1234. Uh, that's the retirement number. Um, and there was a slight change for those of you who are engaged and this doesn't apply to everyone, uh, in-home supportive services worker. Cooper will tell you about that. <clears throat> yes, and this was SB3 passed er earlier this year, uh, and that extends the state's paid sick leave benefits to qualifying in-home supportive service workers. This will include about half a million um, so workers, and the law also prescribes a new definition applicable to this law only um, of sick leave, which is eight hours or one day of paid sick leave and one year of employment, calendar year, or 12-month period beginning July 1st, 2018. And as some of you may be aware, our municipalities in California were quite active this year on a range of labor and employment issues, including paid sick leave. For example, the People's Republic of Berkeley, uh, they passed an ordinance where covered employees will accrue one paid sick leave for every 30 hours worked, which accrues in whole hour units, not fractionally. Um, but they did recognize um, the burden on small businesses to some extent. So there's a cap for small businesses um, for 48 hours per year. For all other businesses, that cap is 72 hours. For San Diego, um, is uh, nearly identical. There's one sick leave hour for every 30 hours worked. Uh, there's no annual cap and no allowed maximum bank, but it does apply to all employers. Um, 
worker employers, however, can uh, cap the usage at 40 hours a year. Uh, San Francisco, they amended their 2007 paid sick leave ordinance, um, which had a 72-hour cap for employers with more than 10 employees and a 40-hour cap for fewer than 10 employees. The amendment now permits employers to front-load leave, um, so the front-loading would be treated as an advance and suspends the accrual. Uh, Los Angeles, their ordinance passed this year uh, will be no less than one hour for every 30 hours worked, a 48-hour cap, but no lower cap for small employers. And finally, for Santa Monica, that is a 72-hour cap for employers with 26 or more employees and 40 hours for employers with 25 or fewer. Okay. Wake up there. This is, <laughs> this is important stuff. Paid sick leave is not quite as extensive on the local level as the minimum wage. One of the major bills that passed, but it only affects a certain segment of the workforce, was AB 1066. What AB 1066 does is phase in additional overtime for agricultural workers. This is a big deal for farm workers, and the United Farm Workers has been lobbying for this for years, and it finally passed. And um, if you if you work if you've got um, if you're in agriculture and have farm workers, you'll you know about it, and you'll definitely need to follow it. Like the minimum wage generally that passed in April, um, this phases in over time, and both by the amounts involved and the number of hours that a worker needs to work to be entitled to overtime because the uh, opposition, of course, included the fact you're going to destroy family farms by doing this, so the bill does have a phase-in and a, a delayed phase-in for um, employers that employ 25 or fewer employees, so they'll have actually a three-year delayed compliance period. But it was a big deal, um, and it also is going to be indexed, and I, I should have mentioned that with the uh, other minimum wage, the state minimum wage. Indexing has been sought for years by um, the Democrats and the unions, and they got it this year in the bill that was passed. In the, uh, what happened in the past is California would increase its minimum wage by you know, ju jumps and spurts and jerks periodically over one, two, three, seven years, stuff like that. Going forward, it's now tied to an economic index and will continue on for uh, without the necessity of the legislature having to get involved at all. Uh, moving on to, again, these are more limited bills. For those of you in the janitorial area, or those of you, again, who uh, are dealing with farm workers, both of those groups of employees in 2017 are going to be subject to additional training requirements. This is sexual harassment. And the reason the legislature saw fit to do that is because they heard a lot of anecdotal evidence that in those two industries, that is janitorial services and farm workers, that there were extended in, uh, uh, a lot of abuses, uh, sexual, sexual harassment and worse. And so they've imposed that. And this is consistent with the California legislature's general attitude that it's going to expand who needs to be trained, what they need to be trained on, and how often they're trained. Um, and so this is just one of those expansions. Um, so that's really an overview, Elise, of, of uh, 
not only the bills that apply to most uh, private sector employers or all of them, but also to some major segments of them. Um, well, thank you. Um, that's a lot for employers to, to digest. And um, you mentioned the 15% the uh, veto rate. Um, do you think that the legislature will try to override any of the governor's vetoes? Well, that's, that's a fun question for those of you into California politics, because there are a lot of uh, states in which one party has both the governor's office and the state legislature. It's not terribly unusual. At this moment in time, most of those that have one-party control are Republicans. The Republicans have, I think, more legislative seats on the state level than they have since at least 1928. So it's it, the rest of the nation is quite red that way. But California remains blue. And it's one of the anomalies of the California political system that the last time a governor had a bill vetoed and the veto was overridden was Jerry Brown during his first administration back in 1979. So there's been no attempted override, or I'm sorry, no successful override of a California governor's veto for uh, more than, what, 36, 37 years. And the political reality behind that is even though the Democrats might be able to do it, and depending on the election results next month, might have the numbers to do it, they are reluctant to confront Governor Brown, who has sometimes been referred to in the California legislative process as the only adult in the room. Um, <laughs> because um, California, you know, uh, governors probably don't take well to having their vetoes overridden. President Obama just had his first veto override, and he was none too pleased with it. Um, but the thing about Jerry Brown that, that I think is really interesting is he will veto bills that went through all committees and both houses of the legislature without a negative vote, and he'll still veto them. So mm. we, had, we had several of those come up, but we'll see what happens. But that's, that's the story of the vetoes, Elise. Well, well, thank you. So don't count on it as the bottom line. Well, um, do you think there were any surprises in what did not make it through the legislature this year? And uh, maybe we can expect to see these bills come up again in 2017. Yes, uh, a few surprises. And I think I'm going to start with the substantive PAGA because I think that was the most important, the most intriguing, and ultimately the most disappointing of what didn't come to fruition. So in January, the governor's budget, um, among a great deal of other things, proposed um, some very real and significant changes to California's Private Attorney General Act. Uh, and he did so in an obscure 22-page addendum where he um, exhorted the legislature to address, to some extent, PAGA's myriad problems, not least of which is that under 1% of all PAGA cases are reviewed or investigated by, uh, by California's, um, by the, uh, the LW or the LDW or yes, the LWDA. Um, so under 1% of all PAGA cases are reviewed or investigated, but the volume of PAGA notices is as high as 635 per month. Thus, the governor accurately noted in his budget proposal that employers, quote, employers are being sued and incurring substantial costs defending against 
technical or frivolous claims. Therefore, he proposed a not insignificant overhaul to PAGA. But the end result of session fell well short of uh, any remedy, and that's because of what was gutted from the proposal before it even made it to committee. This included amnesty from penalties after a, quote, industry-wide practice, unquote, is, quote, invalidated, unquote, through a, quote, major court decision. Um, it also would have required more detail in PAGA claim notices filed with the LWDA. It would have required a process by which employers could request that the LWDA actually investigate these notices. And it would have created a PAGA unit of about 10 or so devoted staff members to implement these reforms. Now, if I were a betting man, I would wager that one, some, or all of these omitted proposals might be floated in 2017. Uh, the new unit can be framed as a benefit for would-be plaintiffs and employers alike. And it does seem like the governor is genuinely committed to reducing, I think in some ways, the legal burden of employers. Um, as you said recently, when asked to comment on how the law has changed the past 50 years, quote, more laws and more damn lawsuits. <laughs> But of course, with uh, the majority party all but beholden to the plaintiff's bar, anything um, that what I just described might be dead on arrival. Um, the legislature has already managed to kill five bills seeking to to update PAGA. So I don't like your chances for next year. Yeah, and PAGA, for those of you who may not be that familiar with what goes on in California, is is a, uh, a remedial statute that passed over uh, about over 10 years ago. And it allows uh, some really, really uh, vicious penalties on employers for not complying with certain provisions of the labor code. So the employer community has for years been saying, you know, can we, can we strike a new balance as far as PAGA and its penalties and their applications are concerned? So, you know, if that comes up, that's great. I wouldn't necessarily hold your breath in the current political climate, though. Okay, so next was um, salary history. Now, there was a salary history bill that was passed, enrolled, and signed by the governor. That was AB 1676, 1676. That is law, um, but it was diluted from its original version. So the question is, can we expect a stronger bill next year prohibiting outright any inquir uh, inquiry into salary history? So, um, like I said, initially, 1676 was identical to a bill proposed last year, AB 1017, which strictly prohibited employers from asking about salary history, and that was vetoed by the governor last October. But um, following concerted opposition from a large coalition of stakeholders, the Senate this year removed the categorical prohibition. Thus, unlike 1017, AB 1676 doesn't prohibit inquiring about salary history. It instead restricts what employers can do with that information. Specifically, salary history cannot by itself justify any disparity in compensation. So on its face then, the text permits using salary history as one of multiple justifications in pay disparity. On that basis, therefore, perhaps we could expect a 1017-like bill next session that would hermetically seal salary history information from employers' inquiries. But the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, while this bill was being moved to the legislature, said basically, based on a strict reading of AB 1676, 
an employer can use only one bona fide factor. But based on another reasonable interpretation of the law, an employer can use multiple factors, such as education and experience. What the committee then went on to say was that if the multiple reading controls, it went, and if it wins out, then salary history may be a permissible factor as well. But if it's the strict reading, i.e. only one factor may be considered, then employers, according to the Senate Judiciary Committee, will not be allowed to inquire about salary history. So it would effectively do indirectly what 1076 sought to do directly. Thus, whether we see a 1017-like bill resurrected next session seems like it will depend on how 1676 is construed in the courts. So I wouldn't expect it next session, but regardless, I don't know why the governor's mind would change on this unless, as he said in his veto message of 1017, the Equal Pay Act isn't working. Um, and next, we had predictive scheduling. This was SB 878, authored by Senator Levia. The bill would have created the Reliable Scheduling Act, which would have required a 21-day schedule listing for all shifts for all restaurant, grocery, or retail store employees at least seven days before the first shift on that work schedule. How sensible, because we all know how static and predictable the food and beverage industry is. Um, the remedy would have been if fewer than, well, the remedy would have depended on the breach. So if, uh, for example, fewer than seven days notice, but more than 24 hours, the employee would have been entitled to modification pay equal to or greater than one hour at the employee's regular rate of pay and so on. Now, if um, the remedies weren't cause for concern, the scope certainly is. Um, because there was no scope. It was without qualification. Not even, not even the San Francisco City Council was so bold. The SF ordinance that inspired this bill, um, that at least covered retail stores with 40 or more locations worldwide or 20 or more employees. And last year's counterpart to this bill, AB 327, applied, would have only applied to food and retail establishments with 500 or more employees in the state and 10 or more stores nationwide. Little wonder then that SB 878 died in committee. But we can't attribute its um, death entirely to its extreme coverage for AB 327, which I just referenced, met a similar fate, yet with, by comparison, decidedly more tempered with its 500 employee qualifications. Um, that the authors of both bills were elected to the legislature only in 2014 may have something to do with their bills failing, but uh, Assemblyman Chu, who authored AB 327, he's no political novice. But in any event, it's more likely that regardless of the coverage, the retail and restaurant industry will continue to mount concerted, um, formidable opposition to any future um, bill. So even if you see something next year, I don't like its chances of faring any better than its failed predecessors. Well, there we go. Now we're going to have to differ in our predictions because I guess I'm enough of an Eeyore to say that I think predictive scheduling is almost inevitable. It may be incremental. It may only apply to certain industries, but I think it's coming. And uh, certain uh, commentators have said that predictive scheduling is going to be the new $15 per hour issue nationwide. So California, once again, uh, in the political climate, 
it has is, I think, going to be a source of this. And that is not to stop, as Cooper already said, the locals from doing this because predictive scheduling started in San Francisco in California. Now Seattle's got it. And I think it's going to spread across the country. Uh, it's going to be one of those issues that goes forward. So for those of you who have hourly employees and have schedules for your employees, be aware of the fact that, that there will be fights about this and that they will try to impose um, restrictions on it and penalties if you change your schedule too little in advance. And that's the idea there. Um, but there will be other things. I mean, uh, speaking generally, and if you look through the uh, newsletter that we have, the legislature generally is enhancing penalties for violating labor code sections and expanding the scope, for example, of existing leave laws. There will be more of that. The California legislature certainly in the last four or five years has been definitely on record as wanting to penalize any California employer who uses immigration status for any reason in employment that is not uh, permitted by federal law. They've built up a great wall of very high penalties if you move outside of what federal law either permits or requires you to do on this subject as a California employer. And as you've heard in the chorus throughout this call, um, you need to be aware of those uh, those jurisdictions in which you operate as to whether they are going to go off on their own and impose predictive scheduling, minimum wages, paid sick leave, stuff like that. So that's really what's going to happen there, at least as far as 2017 is concerned. Well, uh, we still have a few months left in 2016, and we've got some important um, elections coming up here in a few weeks, although most of the focus has been on the race to the White House and control of, of Congress here in Washington. What about from a California perspective, and will the November election affect the balance of power in the California legislature, do you think? Well, if I could only see a show of hands, but this is by telephone, so I can't how many of you would like to sort of fast forward to November 9th and sort of be done with this? <laughs> uh, I'll, bet, I'll bet there are a lot out there. Um, again, consistent with what we've talked about in the course of this call, um, I do not expect the, uh, the, the partisan composition of the legislature to change significantly at all. Democrats, when the dust settles after November 8th, will continue to have majorities in both the state Senate and the state assembly. I suppose it's sort of an interesting question as to whether they'll have two-thirds majorities, which could allow them to pass taxes, uh, specific taxes, and I think that's what they may be gunning for. Uh, but there will be no significant change, and of course the governor is in the last two years of his last term, so that's not going to change anything either. So the political climate in the legislature is going to stay basically the same uh, for 2017 and 2018. We have our two-year sessions of the state legislature. Um, well, there are also a number of ballot uh, propositions coming up uh, in the November elections. And could any of the propositions on the November ballot affect California private sector employers with respect to their workplaces or their employees? Well, there is one that's sure to gain um, a lot of attention if it hasn't already, and that's Proposition 64, which would legalize 
recreational marijuana for individuals over the age of 21. But fortunately, that is not expected to affect employers' right to maintain their drug policies in a drug-free workplace. The proposition, for one, expressly disclaims any intent to restrict the rights of public and private employers to maintain a drug and alcohol-free workplace. And more importantly, perhaps, the marijuana remains a Schedule I narcotic under federal law. And the Supreme Court of California has already held that employers have no obligations under state law to accommodate an employee for or forbear terminating him because of uh, medical use of marijuana. Thus, it would follow that recreational use of marijuana will receive no greater protection. So it doesn't look like the propositions are going to directly affect the people who have to manage employees in California, and that's no small deal. But um, you still have to deal with employees between now and Election Day. And Elise, uh, I think you co-authored a, a uh, newsletter, an ASAP, on this subject, which is available on our website. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, there, there's a lot of potential pitfalls um, and questions I think that employers are going to have as we get uh, even closer to this seemingly never-ending election about the impact of political speech and, and politics in the workplace. So um, to try to help you navigate um, this minefield, um, please refer also when you're looking at this, uh, this insight on the California um, legislator, legislature, um, look for also, a recent insight on political speech in the workplace and what employers um, need to know. And that's going to—that's important in California. One of the many protected California categories that the federal government doesn't have is political activity. So the best example I can use for you, for those of you who get involved in this area, is if somebody comes to you and says, "I want time off because I want to go walk precincts for Donald Trump." You don't say, are you kidding me? Or, for that matter, if they say for Hillary Clinton. Because under California Labor Code Section 1102, they do have the right to engage in political activity. All right? And you can't terminate them for that reason. And I know you never would, but you might, you might not be aware of all the various aspects of California law. As a matter of fact, I have to close by telling you, you know, out of these 800-plus laws that passed, not all of them are rational, of course, and one of them that passed this year was, hold on to your hats, we have a new state fabric, and that new state, <laughs> fabric, that new state fabric is denim. And you say, hey, how important are state emblems? Well, to California, they're extremely important. We have 33 of them, including a state marine fish, soil, folk dance, grass, tartan, lichen, and marine reptile. And with that absurdity, Elise, I think we've probably covered what we need to cover. Well, thank you, Chris and, and Cooper. And thank you for letting us know um, about what uh, this past legislative session has meant for employers in California and also letting us know about uh, the new state fabric denim. Um, so <laughs> if you have any questions, um, please feel free to to reach out to, to Chris and Cooper. And again, thank you both so much um, for joining us today. And for everyone that called in, thank you for taking time this afternoon um, to join our WPI Insider Briefing Call. Thank you. 
The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers, addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.